it was the one thing that Subhash Chandra Bose and uh, other nationalist leaders were trying to fight. That's what the INE was. The INE was for a united India, not a not a divided India, and certainly not an India within uh, within a British Commonwealth and British Dominions. So that's something that I think people need to wrap their heads around. That not only was India and Pakistan both under Britain, but they were also hugely under the influence of British policy. They had British security officials stationed in uh, Delhi who were spying on Indian people, actually. So that was something that um, I think people, uh, our people need to understand this. Uh, Bengalis need to understand, Bangladeshis need to understand it. Pakistanis, for all their wisdom, need, need a proper country before they understand anything else. The illegal immigration thing is actually, the illegal immigration is the reason for why we have this uh, myth. It's it's not really a myth, it's actually something that's manifesting very really in front of uh, in front of our eyes. So yeah, and India, by the way, if you read Christopher Andrews' authoritative biography of the MI5, it clearly says that MI5 had deputed officials in Pakistan and India to uh, to look over their intelligence reports. These people in turn, the people in IB or the intelligence bureau were spying on members of India or the Indian people basically and passing reports to the British. Uh, I found this out in a book called India's Biggest Cover-Up and Conundrum by Anuj Dharan Chandrachur Kosh. They were trying to solve the mystery of Netaji's death, uh, death. And they found out that the Indian government was spying on many uh, members of Netaji's family, his close associates, many other people. And the spying was so, so far spread that it, uh, it was found out that this uh, spying was done on them. Then the reports were given to the IB, the central IB, who passed it on to the British. So that's the kind of influence that British still held in India post-47. So it's not surprising that their policies were not an Indian or Indian-oriented policy, but a British-made policy, which I think is very, very clear into how they implemented policies in, in Bengal against, uh, against Bengalis, especially against the Hindu Bengalis, which is yes. part of my larger, larger concern. And in East Pakistan and West Pakistan, the case was even worse um, in terms of the refu in, in terms of what happened to Hindus post forty seven. So, could you uh, enlighten us about what that what was uh, the specific pogroms happening in East Pakistan? Let's start off with East Pakistan. Uh, maybe Mahua. Yes. So. As we all know that uh, in Bengal, the worst uh, partition violence did not happen during partition. Uh, the only, you know, clear-cut case is, of course, the Noakhali genocide in ni uh, 1946. Uh, but in 47, Punjab uh, and northwestern parts of India had a very clear-cut case of uh, par partition violence, which was two-sided, of course, and there was a huge uh, mass migration from uh, what's now Pakistan to India and from India to Pakistan. Uh, the same did not happen in eastern part of India. So that actually happened later on in 50s. Throughout the 50s, from 53 to 56, over 6 million refugees had come that time. That was also the time when the Nehru Liaquat Pact was uh, done, or the Delhi Pact of 1950, when they basically made the refugees go back. And the pact said that, you know, land and property should be given back to the refugees. And India did keep, keep their word. They gave compensations, they gave the property back to the uh, Muslim citizens who were going to East Pakistan, but the same did not happen in East Pakistan. And that was what happened in 50s. There were many horrific cases and 
the uh, witness witness reports of what what kind of violence has happened. First of all, the East Pakistani government at that time had confiscated legally purchased weapons from Bengali Hindus in Dhaka, and then the all the riots were uh, state sponsored, of course. Hmm. And when the riots started. It was mostly the Bengali Hindu businesses that were attacked that time, and uh, when the, these businesses were attacked, the, of course the businessmen had to go, go away. They had to migrate. All that property was uh, basically taken by you know government legally, and this was done through the Enemy Property Act. Now all of the property that was empty was the property of the enemy and hence why it was legally requisitioned by the government and redistributed and this is how uh dhaka which ha used to have prominent bengali hindu businesses they just all that history is now lost that property is no no more there and you know the famous crafts places such as you know the shakhari bazar and tanti bazar like you know the uh, weavers and all that traditional arts this has affected greatly to the traditional craftsmen and artists of those areas uh these craftsmen of course took their their talent and their you know uh crafts that they have inherited for generations and generations they took to west bengal but again there everything changed and you know traditional traditional sweets traditional foods all that were lost and today there is no trace of that like very little traces are left of that in in dhaka anymore and in other parts of eastern bengal it just disrupted the whole population there and later on the 50s was not the only time when the riots happened they kept happening in the 60s and again the hindu population was targeted and then 1971 of course yeah of course uh what about um in 1964 there's there was an incident that happened in kashmir with the, with the stealing of the prof, uh, prophet's relic now how how in how did they justify it? there were a huge there was a huge riot that happened in dhaka i believe it started off in dhaka and then went on Kulna. it Kulna. was in khulna in khulna okay Kulna, in khulna and then yeah. uh, kept yeah. moving on to many other places how did first of all the enemy property act really stuns me because you've now you've by law just admitted that hindus are enemy of enemies of the state it's very very it's very much similar to what the nazis did to the jewish people except mm. they had better well better media coverage uh, post world war 2 and hindus just don't mm. um about 1964 there were i know there were a lot more riots that happened before that and uh up, up till 1964 but 1964 was a changing point i i believe wasn't it here that we had a larger migration pattern from east pakistan east pakistan to west bengal so shomudip actually could you explain to me that the riots the origin of the riot and what happened after uh, after that after the riots had sort of ended sure so uh, let me get back to the point of illegal immigration again mm -hmm. so you had mentioned about uh, illegal immigration in assam but actually the illegal immigration of uh, the muslims originating from east pakistan was also happening in west bengal as well mm. west bengal and tripura like these yeah. are the three being primary states yeah. so uh, actually uh, we today know that the reason of uh, 1964 riots was you know the uh, the holy relic of prophet muhammad getting lost in shrinagar but uh, prabhas chandra lahiri he has written in his book that he actually believes that it may it, it may have been to do with illegal immigration so if i remember correctly it was in 61 or other 62 when particularly the government of assam they started expelling these illegal refugees from assam on mass and 
Mr. Lahiri, he uh, not had... not refugees, not refugees. They were illegal, illegal immigrants sorry. from very sorry. from uh, East yeah. Pakistan who so, migrated so, yeah. there for the uh, financial reasons because that Correct. time West West, pa- West Pakistan was uh, economically suppressing. Uh, East Pakistan. So many of these migrants went to Assam or uh, West Bengal to so for working Mr. opportunities. So Mr. Lahiri actually uses a different term, uh, actually evicted refugees. So they are citizens of East Pakistan itself who had went into India for economic opportunities and then they were sent back to East Pakistan. So the term I meant to use was evicted refugees, whatever. So uh, mm-hmm. Ayub Khan was not particularly happy with that. So it can, and according to Mr. Lahiri or according to the speculation at that, at that point, uh, the 64 event may actually have been premeditated as uh, the people of Pakistan were not happy that uh, Muslims were being evicted from India, which originally were citizens of East Pakistan itself. In fact, whenever any action uh, happened in India and against Muslims, say, uh, Pakistan used to put that, vent that anger out on the Hindu citizens over there. So this pattern can also be seen in what happened in Hyderabad. So when uh, Sadar Patel, he, yeah, you know, uh, operation marched on Polo. the army to, exactly, in Operation Polo, this too led to a refugee exodus of, uh, of mostly Hindus from East Pakistan. So uh, PN Luthra cites that number to be around 7.86 lakhs, if I'm correct. So this, like, the same pattern was again most likely repeated in 1964. This uh, is another prelude to it. And yes, what happened was the uh, holy relic, our Prophet Muhammad had gotten lost from Hazrat Bal Mosque in Srinagar. Pakistan, the Pakistani radio, the Pakistani press, their, their eminent intellectuals, they all started a vilifying hate campaign against India. They made uh, Hindus the, uh, you know, seem as it was a conspiracy by the Hindus to destroy Islamic uh, Islamic presence in the, in the subcontinent, etc. And the, the inflammatory speeches, the bad press publicity, etc. This cornered the Hindus. And at that time, Khulna had a very significant Hindu population. If I remember correctly, uh, maybe the Khulna division was around 36% Hindu, Hindu uh, at, mm-hmm. at that point. And, the, and maybe the Khulna Shodor might have been 44%. So it was Abdul Sabur Khan, a very close uh, aide of your uh, Ayub Khan. And at that time, he was the communications minister of Pakistan. He personally had come to Khulna and, and started giving the inflammatory speeches. And uh, there were many, there were many things I can say. I mean, I don't think it would be, you know, to, like, uh, a normal person would not be very happy. Listen to that. He, uh, he, uh, didn't he lose a case? I think he lost a case of uh, Absolutely. property against, yes. uh, against a Hindu Absolutely. person. And uh, this, uh, this he, with the Hazrat Bal attack, he used this as a pretext to attack, attack those people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. In fact, he was also disappointed by the fact that uh, his chosen candidate, had not fared well in in mm. the previous election that that happened in that election. So there are multiple angles to it. It is not only the Srinagar part, but uh, that is true that the the Hazrat Bal case actually helped them get most of the you know the noise that they wanted. That finally they could uh, you know start the things that, that they wanted to do. So yes, uh, it started off in Khulna, later spread to Dhaka, Narayan Ganj, and unfortunately you will again see a pattern here. Hindu-owned uh, mills, Lakshmi Narayan mills and Dhakeshwari cotton mills. These were attacked primarily and they were attacked by the opposing mills of Adamji, Ispahani, etc. So again, we see deliberately the Hindu businesses being targeted. So, you know, this led to another loss of economy, which again forced most of the Hindus to migrate. And Khulna also happened to be a border district. So the migration pattern was from Khulna to Joshore and, you know, it again started a huge refugee crisis that West Bengal particularly had to endure. And side by side, there were also migrations happening from Moimonshing district, which uh, included Hindus, of course, and of course, Garos, who are currently settled in Meghalaya. Mm-hmm. So if we see to it, it's not only the Bengali Hindus that have suffered. We have been the largest community that have been affected. But other minorities, too, did not find any peace in Pakistan. And the 64 riots... Uh, led to uh, retaliationary riots in Calcutta when the people got to know what was happening just across the border. But at that point, we must see the role of Gulzari Lalnanda. He was the home minister at that point and he 
was very swift in taking action. He immediately deployed, deployed the army and the protest was uh, controlled in about two to three days. But we do not see the same action being done in Pakistan. And that is the problem. Like, despite the Indian government knowing what is happening in Pakistan, there was, the Indian press did not highlight it, what happened there. The, uh, we can argue that the Indian press mostly highlighted India's actions of how they stopped a potential uh, communal flare-ups over here. But unfortunately, uh, as per uh, S.K. Bhattacharya in his book, he claims that the Western press, in fact, had picked up what was happening in India and assumed that there was something wrong happening in India. Whereas in reality, this was a Pakistan was a Exactly. Exactly. In reality, the exodus was happening from East Pakistan and East Pakistan did not allow even photographs to, take, uh, to be taken of the incident. In fact, if you still uh, search on many old newspapers, you would, you would hardly find any, uh, any photographs of that point, what happened in 1964. And mm-hmm. 64 riots, they, sh- they saw a migration pattern that, uh, you know, again, many Bengali Hindus had come to West Bengal. They then had to be shifted by trains mm-hmm. to Dandakaranya. It's an, an arid forest that was cleared up and Adandakarani rehabilitation project was set up. So basically the idea was to settle the refugees over there and hopefully they can start their lives. This fresh. was uh, near like, Odisha, right? Odisha and Chhattisgarh border? Yeah, yeah most likely Odisha and Chhattisgarh border. Mm. So, but we again see the pattern. We, It's like we knew what was happening. We knew that Pakistan is definitely not a friend of, the, of any minorities, especially Hindus. Mm-hmm. But so much could have been avoided. Like this is a fact that I keep lamenting upon. Just an addition here, we can see uh, in uh, 1946 riots, so basically the Pakistani government, what they did, Pakistani government media establishment, they started speaking uh, very much against India and Hindus, not just their media and government, but also their Malavis, they started speaking against Hindus. They even took the Kashmir, the case in Srinagar to UN. Mm-hmm. And they started speaking about this Indian conspiracy to uh, destroy Muslims or whatever. But India did not do the same thing. I mean, there was this one-sided propaganda machination against India and particularly Hindus because Hindus always have this purported uh, association with India. So basically, there is like one, one-sided narrative against uh, Hindus and uh, the oppression the supposed oppression that the Indian government was doing, which in most cases were proven to be false. For example, there was like uh, uh, this uh, Darga complex that had a fire and Pakistan blew that up uh, out of proportion. They said that this was done by the Indian government. It was later found out that this Darga complex had uh, some kind of fire spreading there because of, you know, someone had put the gas open or something. So that's why it caught fire. So no way government did anything. But of course, it suited that time Pakistan's narrative that, you know, and at the same time, the hair was stolen. It was later found out that the hair was stolen, the relic, the prophet's hair was stolen by three Kashmiri Muslim men, one of them who was connected to the government of Pakistan. So all that, all those riots against Hindus, all of those venomous speeches against Hindus for an artifact, a relic that was stolen by Kashmiri Muslims. But nobody paid any compensations to those Hindus. 800,000 Hindus had migrated that time from East Pakistan due to the riots. But India did not do the same. They did not raise any consciousness. They did not, you know, uh, highlight the fact that there were refugees coming. In fact, when the refugees were coming to the train uh, stations to West Bengal, the government did their best to hide the condition of the refugees so that it wouldn't further fuel the riots because some reactionary riots happened in West Bengal, which were, of course, uh, you know, uh, extinguished within within hours, within a couple of days. And West Bengal government itself paid compensation to all the displaced Muslims that, uh, uh, you know, who were displaced due to the riots. And uh, they 
gave out statements that no rights should happen, whatever happened elsewhere, no rights should happen. And punitive taxes were imposed on uh, Nudia district particularly, so that those taxes were used to pay compensations. The same did not happen in Pakistan. The same did not happen, like no compensations were paid to Hindus, obviously. So we can see how disproportionate this whole case was against the Hindus and how it is still amazing that people don't know about this. This is all in the public domain, but it's still not in the public consciousness of people like people don't know what why there there were so many refugees coming they keep asking that uh, why did they stay during partition why did they n- not come back then or uh, hmm. there are just simple explanations that these happened because of these and these events and so I think yeah you're right the lack of depth of understanding if uh, I think someone actually asked uh, we were having a conversation few days ago someone told me why didn't the Bengalis just uh, get up and leave and you know Bengali Hindus mm-hmm. just get up and leave from um, from their places in East Pakistan like you try and resettle an entire family from Khulna come on not pe- not all the people mm-hmm. first of all have the resources second there was exactly. a great deal of a great deal of racism against against these people against the uh, Hindus for example when mm-hmm. the Dalits in West Pakistan were were leaving, were trying to leave um, in the 1950s, yeah, in the 1950s, they were trying to leave and go to India, Liaquat Ali stopped them. He said, if these people leave uh, our, our places, who's going to clean our, who's going to clean our streets, who's going to sweep the uh, floors, who's going to clean the bathrooms? This was his recorded comment. But hmm. lo and behold, no one's going to, no one's going to care. The Indian government's reaction to what they did in West Bengal, it was correct that that should have happened. These riots should not have happened. But at the same time, uh, shedding light on what's happening to the Hindus would have brought back to why partition happened. And that is something that the Congress would not have been able to adjust to. There is no Mm. partition. As far as I know, there's no partition memorial uh, for Mm. any of the victims who died during partition. There's no memorial in Delhi or anywhere else to commemorate the mm. loss that happened in in uh, in Punjab and Bengal, the reason becomes simply clear: the Congress it, continuously made blunders, which led mm. to so many losses. Exactly, and Mr. Nehru. Exactly, and it is a pattern. It is a pattern. And exactly, and to this, uh, someone uh, well known to me uh, had said that India had two options post 1947: they either tell the people that it is partition and build a narrative around that. Or they chose to uh, say that it was freedom and build a narrative around that, which and it can be clearly seen that they happened to choose the latter, freedom, azadi, swatantrata. That mm-hmm. was the uh, path that the Indian government took. And, and more or less, say we if we look at the books, the rhetoric, and, and uh, yes, partition is a memory that has been you know uh, simmered down, toned down. So worst of all, it's not just that they say it's freedom; it's that they say it's azadi. Um... Peaceful Azadi. We got it with uh, without mm. a sh- without losing we, blood. We got it because of Mahatma Gandhi's non-violence. Or, or Satyagraha, which is absolutely untrue. It was because of the armed violence that happened, particularly, especially in Bengal, that was happening during that time in Midnapore. There I, were many armed rebellions. Then there were like... Uh, there was, you know, salt protests, salt march and protests. If they keep saying that it was a peaceful, peaceful partition, it is an insult against those people who died that time. There is actually, um, yeah, so there was this one case where there was an entire village of women who were raped only because, um, uh, only because they were making salt themselves. So this is all in the public domain, but how is it that even still now people are saying that it was because of peaceful peaceful protest India got its independence? It was very much violence and bloodshed that happened. Uh, could you uh, go back to this story? Because I, I hadn't heard about this. Okay, so uh, basically... 
Um, uh, so, okay, we'll go back to the SALT protest. So, uh, Was it in 19, uh, around 1931 when the when uh, Mr. Gandhi did his assault march, or was it? Uh, a uh, it, it was 19, uh, 1945, 27th of September. There, uh, doc, Dr. Sushila Nair and Abha Gandhi were uh, making reports of 49 raped women in the countryside of Bengal. So they had, you know. Their only fault was that they were preparing their own salt. And, you know, that was their only crime. They made their own salt. That was the time of, you know, Satyagraha, Quit India Movement. And uh, 45 or 42? Because 45 was, 45 was not, yeah. uh, uh, Quit India Movement had fizzle, fizzled out in, in two weeks in 1942. Yeah. Uh, it, it continued to uh, 1943 in uh, Midnapur, mm -hmm. uh, but it fizzled right before the Bengal famine. Right. So it did. It did continue as a violent protest in Midnapur, but mm -hmm. until the Bengal famine, it, it was very violent in that part. Right. Uh, but then came the famine, and then the whole Quit India movement fizzled. Uh, the Hindu leadership was jailed, but it was those times, around those times, mm -hmm. when people were advocating for Swadeshi and boycotting the British goods and all that. See, I have a different take on why Britain were forced to leave India. Um, while the salt marches and everything happened, while Quit India happened, between 1942 to 45, there was no concentrated effort in India in India to fight against the British because World War Two was happening. All the big leaders were in jail. Post-World War Two, what happened was the INA trials. The Indian National mm -hmm. Army who came into, which who were repatriated back to India, their trials happened. And this caused a massive sensation within the public sphere. So the, for the first time, people found out that there was an army actually uh, led by Subhash Chandra Bose outside India fighting for Indian freedom. This included Hindus, mm -hmm. Muslims, Sikhs, the whole lot. And this is where uh, you start seeing a um, huge number of protests and huge number of, uh, uh, sorry, yeah, protests happening, the military revolts happening in, uh, in Jabalpur, in Bombay, the Navy ratings, uh, the Navy sailors were protesting against the British. They said they would not serve the British. So that was one massive reason why Britain decided, okay, it's time for us to leave. And the second, the most second thing was that, well, they were economically not in a position to uh, undertake or to take uh, India, to hold down on India, which was evident mm -hmm. by a lot of the evidences that keep, kept coming between the Viceroy, uh, I think yeah, it was Viceroy Wavell who sent a letter to King George on 31st of December saying that if, an 1857 type mm. situation is emerging and if we have to control India, we will have to reconquer India with European troops because we cannot trust any more Indian troops. Every Indian right now, every Indian worth of salt right now is uh, a nationalist. They will not support the British. So this stands mm. in stark contrast to what Gandhi, the Gandhian uh, mode of nonviolence and all of that was. And it's, it's strange because this was the one movement where you saw after a long, long time that Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs were actually coming together. Congress and uh, Muslim League were forced to come together because no one else, because if you don't come together, well, then you're losing the public's attention. You're losing the public's, uh, what public's interested in. And that was a huge thing that uh, I felt that I, when I read through it, I, I think, it makes a compelling case for why India, why Britain were forced to leave India, but they left it on relatively their own terms, not on India's terms. They left India with their own terms. Absolutely. Now, uh, when we come back to 1971, I don't think that story really needs to be count recounted because it's been so well covered. 
it's been so well documented that uh, that story really doesn't need to be told. But what happened post seventy uh, one? Uh, I'm more concerned with the how Bangladesh came out of it and. For Hindus, I know from a personal family experience that when my family came back to their village, their houses were burnt down and not by Razakars, or sorry, not by the Pakistan army, but by Razakars from living in the next village. They, mm. they used to see these people before, before the war, they saw these people coming and going, everything was fine. During the war, mm. the same people came in and burnt their houses and surprisingly, they did not burn the temple which either they missed or I don't know what happened. And post-71, uh, these people were again back on the streets, just, you know, regularly as if nothing had happened. So what was happening in seventy post-71 in Bang, in the newly created Bangladesh? And now let Somudeep start actually with this one. Uh, to be honest, like uh, Muhua, I uh, would know better to be in the meeting in this aspect. So I let her continue on that. All right. All right. Okay. So after 71, of course, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman became the president and prime minister. And then m many organizations such as the Jamaat Islami, they were banned. And, you know, he went like he wanted to go towards secularism, but then happened a coup. Was it in 1975? A coup happened and uh, it was taken over by... Zia, the military uh, military general, and then obviously the previous ban on Jamaat Islami was uplifted, and then Jamaat Islami came back again. Mm -hmm. so, uh, many of the Jamaat Jamaat Islami members went into hiding. Some uh, went to USA, UK. And some lived very lavish lives, still continue to live lavish lives in independent Bangladesh. And there is like one case. Uh, my grandmother's neighbor was a Razakar. Mm -hmm. And he was the reason why my grandparents left and uh, they went to India that time because they saw that they were not safe anymore. They were educated and Hindus. They were not safe. Mm -hmm. So when they came back after eight months of the war, they had lived in uh, West Bengal. There was my grandmother's big brother who had came before partition. Around the partition, he had like moved to West Bengal due to studies, but then he had stayed after the partition. So they were staying there, but after eight months, they had to see because my great grandparents had stayed during the war to, you know, for sentimental reasons, they wanted to protect their land, their house. They went to see if they were still alive and all right. So they went back. They also saw that this Razakar was still there. And this Razakar continued to live as a neighbor up to the 90s when he died. So like people know, the local people know who were the Razakars and how long they lived after and how lavishly they lived. It was just such a normalized thing that war criminals kept on living for a long time. And some war criminals even became the members of parliament of Bangladesh. For example, the key instigator of the 1964 riots, Abdus Sabur Khan, he was given amnesty by Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and he became the member of parliament and basically he was a politician until his death and nothing happened to him. Then there is like Saidi, Delar Hussein Saidi. There were many, many testimonies against him that he had, you know, brought the Razakars to Hindu villages. They were raping women there. They were killing people. This man has been elected from his own constituency, Pirojpur, and he he was in the parliament. He was member of parliament and he was chosen twice. And basically, now when people say, when we talk about these situations in Bangladesh, people say that, well, 
at least Bangladesh is better to minorities because they gave a death sentence to Saidi. This was all political, basically. This was all political. How did they live lavishly up till this point? And then they were, then uh, ICT was set up and then they were given punishments. Well, this is actually what we speculate, but all this is done for political reasons. There, there was no true justice to Hindus. There was no true justice to the people who suffered in the war the most. Right. Uh, and like, I'll add an additional yeah. point, like just immediately post the uh, liberation of Bangladesh, we saw uh, Ramna Kalibari. As in, which was destroyed on uh, 27 March 71 by Pakistan Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was actually given to uh, Dhaka Recreation Club, a Dhaka Club, which was a recreation club. Mm-hmm. So we see an iconic, an icon of uh, Hinduism in Dhaka, the Ramna Kalibari, that was destroyed. But just after independence of Bangladesh, I mean, it was it was not restored. And secondly, uh, there's another uh, primary festival. Uh, in Dhaka, that is Janmashtami. There's a very beautiful Janmashtami procession, and like you must be aware of it. So what we have found out that it was immediately uh, withheld in 1947, just immediately after the creation of Pakistan. And in independent Bangladesh, this too could not take off. And ironically, only under the uh, military dictatorship of Irshad, who is, uh, you know, generally regarded by many as a Hadan Islamist ruler, he allowed that in 1989. So it's pretty confusing to. I mean, how to judge Bangladesh in this matter? Even though on the outside, it may seem as a secular country, the, the Hindus are doing well. But if we look into the nitty-gritty details like this, like the, there is a lot to be desired in, like in this fact, if we, if we look at it. Uh, this, that, that part was really confusing, actually. I, <laughs> I did not expect that uh, from a hardcore Islamist leader. This, uh, this, is the part that, that, this is the part that really confuses me because... Um, I've I have met a lot of Bengali. Uh, I have a lot of friends from Bangladesh, and my cousins who live there as well. They have no problem mingling with anybody else. They're they're all okay mingling with Muslims, Hindus, and Muslims mingle together. But it almost seems like this is happening now. This is happening now. But the moment a crisis happens, the moment something happens outside where it feels it's anti-Muslim. The thing is going to fall down on Hindus once once more. Absolutely. <clears throat> exactly. As I said, the same pattern we saw, mm. let's say, first in 1949 itself, uh, 48 itself, mm-hmm. uh, again repeating in uh, 19, 1950. In fact, uh, the 1950s that happened, it, it also took place because of a rumor uh, yeah. that a uh, large number of Muslims have been killed in Calcutta. Mm-hmm. So someone someone reenacted reenacted that same in uh, near Dhaka uh, assembly fan, correct? And it led to what happened in 1950. 1964, like we just have discussed that. Mm-hmm. So any action that happens, uh, you know, outside of uh, Bangladesh or let's say Pakistan, action, the retaliatory action always, like Hindus were always the first to face that. And very recently we saw the case of Emmanuel Macron. So yeah. his policy against the radical Islamists in, in France mm-hmm. led to widespread uh, rallies in Dhaka. A week Came, we came across incidents of houses being attacked in uh, Brahman Bariya. And uh, if I'm correct, uh, many Hindus uh, have been arrested because of the digital act. As in, it is very easy for someone to, let's say, hack into someone else's account, mm-hmm. a Hindu account, and post blasphemous stuff. And the law is then applied against the Hindus instead of the, instead of the person who actually hacked into the account to, to make that statement. So mm-hmm. a clear division in, in matters of crisis is seen. So... To be honest, if we look into the events that have happened in the past and look into these specific set of events, events that are happening, I mean, there is a question like, uh, what exactly has changed? Like, hmm, it still seems seems to be like the modus operandi seems to be the same. Right, but some things have changed, right? Because you don't see this widespread violence that is happening, and I, it's I still agree that. This is very, it's a still a very dangerous place to live. But I am thinking, is it, uh, is it as uh, re- re- repetitive or as widespread? Because with when CAA was announced, I remember even Bengali Hindus were concerned. What would happen to them? A lot of people didn't understand it. Bangladesh, Bangladesh people 
uh, there were rumors that India would now look look to recapture Bangladesh or something like that. There, there were rumors going around, flying thick and fast around that time. What was happening uh, in Bangladesh specifically uh, in terms of protests and rallies? So, uh, yeah, so basically what I know is that maybe some young students did protest in Bangladesh against the CAA. There is actually very little understanding of the law, and uh, but it would, wouldn't really matter because the main thing is that this did cause some fear mm-hmm. in Bangladeshi Hindus because if it would mean that uh, India would start, you know, deporting the illegal immigrants from uh, Bangladesh uh, to back to Bangladesh, then what would it mean to the minority community? Of course, the fallback would be on the Hindu community. It's always on Hindu community. And even though there is like, you know, in the time of peace, uh, people do talk and mingle around, but... Mm-hmm subconsciously everybody knows that bad times can come anytime and there is no guarantee when like when will it come and what to do then and we can see uh around in 2012 2013 2016 there were riots there were large-scale riots uh these riots happened after uh the jamaate islami leader abdul qadir mullah and Delor Hussein Saidi. They were sentenced to life imprisonment and death sentence were given to them. This caused uh, large-scale riots against the Hindu community and it was countrywide. And in our eyes, it's like, in my eyes, it's not that surprising. It's just another pattern that, that keeps repeating. But that time, it's like, you know, if, if that time people would see it from their perspective, the perspective of the minority community in Bangladesh, they would be like amazed that it's still happening. It's like the fallback always comes on their community and it's just a fact. I, yeah, that, that is something I, I can definitely agree and relate to actually. Um, when doing a, uh this when doing this uh, podcast or whenever doing interviews like this or even posting materials like this did you guys face any any sort of resistance uh, uh, back home or even within your own communities I'll start with Shomudip actually on this one any any sort of uh, resistance uh, on this well to be very honest uh, we all personally keep a low profile here so and we just like we just have started on this so uh, fortunately, no. Uh, uh, our uh, a few of my near and dear friends have actually supported me on this, mm-hmm. so that is actually after a positive start. We do have people who do not necessarily agree, but we are at least on a talking point now. As as I said, many of the things that have happened in the past, they were simply unaware of it. So this, I feel, you know, that we are doing something on the right track. As our motive never has been to tell them, you know, what we are saying is correct, just believe us. No, it's not like that. The point is, we're just telling what happened in the past. This should come into public consciousness and this should be a talking point. So, as of now, uh, it has been a very heartwarming response if you, like, ask me personally, sir. Okay. And for you, Mahua? Personally, I do not come with my own face because there is a very legitimate threat that, you know... I, I might get threatened, yeah. but uh, for now, the, I choose to focus on the pos- positive response. Many people have said that they had no idea about these things. Mm-hmm. We spend hours and hours reading stuff and making very simplified videos and writing very simplified articles, explaining some stuff that never got out from East Pakistan and basically our uh, objective is to bring this to a non-Bengali audience because a lot of the material is in Bangla, but, you know, it just stays in one place. It's like static, but we want it to go out 
so that other people can learn, other people can know what happened in India, eastern part of India, that border, and what happened in East Pakistan, then in Bangladesh, what happened there, so that, you know, people won't be so ignorant. So they won't say that, why did not the Bengali Hindus leave during partition? Why did they not fight back? Or Mm -hmm. why did this and that happen? There are very simple, simple explanations. And then there are very complicated explanations, which we're trying to bring out. Mm -hmm. And the response we've gotten has been like, very, very, very beautiful. Like many people have said that they had no idea. And these should be in history books. This should be in textbooks. Why are not they in textbooks? So this has been like very heart touching to us because this is what we want to do. We want to, uh, we want our community to become the talking point and we want these events to come to the consciousness of the people so that they know that what happened and why it happened. And there are quite frankly, a lot of things that need to be, uh, brought brought about like what happened to uh, the refugees who came to West Bengal and how did you know how did India react to them and for example there are you know um, Subhas Bose's loyalists and comrades from Forward Bloc and RSP and PSP who took the cause of Bengali Hindu refugees that time and they were the ones who were giving land to these displaced refugees at the same time when uh, government was like, you know, writing these facts like Nehrulia got back to, you know, send back the refugees or whatever. So there are many, many angles to this whole crisis and how it has affected, because this is what has affected the whole Indian politics to say, yeah. say it clearly it, it, it this just affects the entire country not just bengal right right completely understood um going forward i i've asked i asked that question specifically because when i when i started doing my podcast about uh, netaji's death mystery i received a lot of feedback a lot of it positive but a lot of them very very hostile at the same time I received a lot of, because I'm from Canada, I've barely stepped foot in India. I barely stepped foot in Bangladesh. And for a person to comment on that, it's it's a matter of, you know, people will argue, hey, what right do you have to um, speak about these issues? But I personally felt mm-hmm. that, well, if you're speaking with the right facts, if you're speaking with the right documents, if you're speaking with a bit more mm-hmm. uh, clarity of thought, then doesn't matter where you are. This was my larger mm. concern because I don't know what to do going forward. In even with Nitaji and even with this problem of what what's happening to uh, Bengali Hindus or what has happened and what needs to be done forward. My my last question that will be to both of you is, what do you think is the way forward for Bengali Hindus outside Bangladesh? and Bengali Hindus inside Bangladesh? Uh, let Somudeep uh, answer that first. I can say something on the outside Bangladesh part. Mm. Uh, first step would be to basically understand what has you know, happened to us. Mm. Happened as in uh, post-46, post-46 other. That was the time, you know, the pogroms had started, the refugee crisis started, etc. And this is a chapter that is very uh, conveniently erased from our history. Unless we get to know that, we would not know who we are. And if we don't know who we are, we would have no clue how to move on forward. So to understand the identity is the first thing. Secondly would be to keep the memories of our ancestors, of our forefathers alive. This may be in the form of learning the the rituals, the family customs, the dialect that we used to speak, etc. Because those are the identity of our forefathers. They, they, you know, they carried on their legacy. And we too need to, you know, continue the same. Because if somebody, let's say, asks a Bengali situated in India, what is his ancestry? He might as well say Chattogram or let's say Dhaka, for instance. Mm-hmm. He may know where these places are, but he probably has no idea about, you know, what is the culture of that place. So one may definitely find them in old books if one is interested in reading or maybe inside the family. Family is the best source of information. Mm-hmm. But if they go onto the internet and let's say search on that, 
I mean, there is very little information of the Hindu side of it because practically speaking, uh, Bangladesh is doing an excellent job and, you know, in representing their community. And let's face it, they have the cities right now. They have people over there right now and they're doing what they can at best. We do not have an equivalent thing from our side. And this is why we thought that getting to stamp our identity on the internet, you know, in the form of, let's say, small videos or books or other. I mean, this was also one of the, you know, thinking points behind why stories of Bengali Hindus have to be started because our side of the story is not written. The second would be, as I said, uh, first you get to know what you were and second would be to talk about it to your people as in uh, your identity is your pride. That is thing. And third would be to encourage, you know, to tell your stories to others, like to tell other people like what, ha- what exactly happened and basically encourage the politicians to take steps to basically protect and safeguard the cause of the Bengali Hindus because if we just take into account West Bengal and Bangladesh, we Bengali Hindus are effectively a minority if we consider the entire Bengali population itself. So unless we stake claim on our identity, I mean, uh, this is a legitimate fear that, uh, you know, our group or most of us have had. Because today when we refer to, let's say, Kashmiri, we think of um, Kashmiri Muslims rather. But the pundits, I mean, uh, they too are Kashmiris. And in fact, exactly. They, yeah, they are the indigenous people as well. So mm-hmm. they are completely So. What if in the future we come to a point and, you know, we think who is a Bengali and the answer is only Muslim? Because this is a fact that we see many of our friends from the UK diaspora complain. As when Bengali is being mentioned in the UK, the UK, UK, uh, people of UK, uh, you know, they tend to think mostly about, let's say, the Bangladeshi community or rather the Sirati community in that way. Mm. So this is, in a way, we see a cultural genocide too happening. I mean, our culture is not uh, well represented. So... Uh, moving forward, yes, we need to take these three things into account and just basically talk about it and you know, let people know about it. So, right. I mean, that would be my suggestion. Okay. Uh, what is uh, BHS, what is the plan for BHS in the future? What is BHS going to do uh, go moving forward? Are there any new uh, stories that you guys are going to publish? Is, are there more videos coming up, Mahwa? Yes, we're planning to do a lot of things. For example, on 27th March, Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to have uh, Remembrance Day for the Bengali Hindu genocide. The reason why the date was uh, chosen, because uh, in 1971, 27th March, Pakistani army uh, destroyed the Ramna Kali Mandir. And from that point on, it was becoming more and more apparent that the primary targets of the 1971 genocide were the Bengali Hindu community. Mm. So, so uh, and of course, this did not happen in vacuum. The 1970, what happened, whatever happened in 1971 did not happen in vacuum. All the previous decades, 50s, 60s, they all played a huge role in what happened in 71 and why the Hindus were attacked. They were targeted that time. So this is why um, uh, 27th is marked as a Remembrance Day. Actually, this came into fruition because on 25th March, the Bangladeshi government uh, has an official Genocide Remembrance Day. But we feel that the Bengali Hindu community deserves a special day of remembrance because we, after all, were the primary targets. And this initiative was not actually started by our group. It was started by another group in West Bengal, but uh, we are just amplifying the message and we wish it to be an annual annual event. And this is also what we personally would like to see, and uh, which is that um, whatever happened should never be forgotten. It should always like be in our memories, the, whatever happened in partition after partition, people should know their roots. They should know their community. So much was lost then. A lot of the migrants who came from East Bengal to West Bengal, they lost their dialect, their native dialect. They lost some of their customs, their rituals, this, their special rituals. And uh, some cultures were partially wiped out or practically wiped out completely from those regions, such as the Dhaka. Basically, there is no more the uh, 
Vaishnavite culture of Dhaka visible in Dhaka anymore. So unless people know what happened, uh, that this can be compared to the Holocaust or what happened, whatever happened to Jews or uh, the pogroms, the ethnic cleansing, the wipe out, total wipeout of an entire culture, why is it that different other communities in rest of the world speaks about that, but why does not our community speak about it? We want that our community starts to speak about these issues so that you know people will stop hushing around and stop being quiet whenever something happens. It's just, I think it's in our psyche. That whenever something bad happens, then our parents are like, just forget it, just study and become good somewhere else. Mm -hmm. But we can't do that anymore. This is about like our history, our life and death battle Mm -hmm. in like of our existence. So that's my opinion. No, I'd like to add one point to what Mu was said. the point of culture getting wiped out. Uh, that is true. It is, ex- it is indeed extremely sad to hear that. But uh, with a heavy heart, we have to move on forward as well. As in, this is why as I, like, we emphasize to know your roots. Uh, you may not, uh, you know, re- revive your culture the way it was. Like To an extent, it may be impossible because uh, let's say the uh, craftsmen or people who were into the arts, they were totally dependent on the soil, on the produce from that they most probably if they move on from their homelands, they would not be able to replicate that. But the point is to understand what has happened, to talk about it, to ensure that it never again happens and we build something new again. So cultures are not stagnant. They have to keep on moving. However, we need to acknowledge that the wipeout of our culture, the wipeout of our language, our people, this was artificial in nature. This is why it is. This should ne- never be forgotten. Like what has happened should can never be forgotten. And remembering that we we move on forward. Exactly, I agree with you because uh, I've I'm, I'm, I'm I see this every day in uh, within my family, within various sections of the Bengali community where everyone's happy to move move on, move move forward, move forward, move forward together, and I keep wondering what are they moving forward from. Like, what mm-hmm. do they know about what happened before that they're they're so eager to move forward from? It's just an uncomfortable con- conversation for them. It's a very uncomfortable conversation. And the mm-hmm. fact that the next generation of Bengalis have, first of all, very little idea on how to speak Bangla, are ashamed to speak Bangla publicly, which is very surprising. Very, very surprising. But it's a fact that I've seen them... Mm, you speak in Bengali, they'll respond back in English. And mm. it's, it's, it's a little, it's sad, but it's also very reminiscent of, a, of, of for people who are trying to forget what happened in the past. And while the past was painful, it has to, I agree with well, what the both of you said, that it has to be remembered. You're right. We cannot follow our cultures 100% as they were before, but a small remnant of it can be kept in our memories can be kept in our practices as well in our daily practices and it needs to be imbibed um, amongst all of all of our younger generation they need to know especially people living in europe and america and north america they need to know that you're canadian Mm -hmm. or you're european that's one thing but where you came from is a whole separate thing your identity is a whole separate thing that's what you need to connect Mm -hmm. to if you're going to move forward so with this, um, I will end today's uh, uh, today's podcast. Uh, thank you very much for both of you for coming and uh, entertaining my questions. Uh, do you guys have any questions for me? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us. We are very grateful for this opportunity and we feel very honored to have talked to you. You're a very knowledgeable person and this was a delightful conversation and we feel like at least I feel like that you know there are a lot of things that need to be discussed further and Hmm. this whole subject deserves a lot more podcasts and because the whole history from pre-partition to partition and to today Mm -hmm. what India is today 
is just, you know, such a large topic to be discussed upon. And it would be nice to hear more about this topic. And from an uncensored point of view, such things that are not in the history textbooks, but they are still in the public domain, or these are the things that our parents remember or grandparents remember. Mm -hmm. These definitely need to be discussed. So we are very grateful for this opportunity you have offered us um, yeah thank you Lala from my side as well like we did we did not expect to get this much of a response when we had started our page I mean we're seeing people connecting with us trying to talk to us and you know like listen to us so uh, thank you very much uh, for like giving us a platform to you know uh, talk to you and and that was the show guys if you like my channel if you like what I'm doing please subscribe to the show on whichever platform you're listening to Please follow Stories of Bengali Hindus on their platforms on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Stories of BHS. Their links are at the description below. We will collaborate soon and discuss more relevant topics pertaining to current issues of Hinduphobia against Bengali Hindus and Hindus in general. So once again, please do share this with your friends and family and help spread the word. If you like my podcast on Netaji, please do follow me on Twitter and share your thoughts, comments or feedback. My handle is Sankalpasam. Until next time, Namaskar.